People of Earth, if you can hear my voice, you have arrived at part two of my conversation with director, screenwriter, cinematographer, best-selling author Stephen Bernstein. So let's get back into it. Pick it up! Welcome to Breakfast with Brent Pope. Breakfast. This young lady just smashed the lids on all these cakes in the bakery section. I could go on a Hallmark card. <laughs> my uh, guest today. Oh, I'm going to need to hear all about that. I didn't need any extra sausage. He adds character to my crew. <laughs> Is a goat pit a real thing? What? Welcome to Breakfast with Brent Pope. Great place to hang out and good food, too. I'm always playing blue-collar guys. Somebody screw through the pipe. I wouldn't jump up and down until we stabilize the hydraulics. I love a crawler. All my uncles got the gout. Jalapeno slash cheddar waffles. Who doesn't love that? It's Breakfast Time. Breakfast. The only show where bacon, pancakes, Hollywood. I'm your host, Brent Pope. I do love a good steak. I recently have been going more towards, and I've always been like a porterhouse ribeye guy. And now I'm, I'm kind of going more towards the um, the filet. I don't know if it's because the size is a little more tender. We evolve and we like different things as we go through. And I, I think I think we do. First of all, I know just in terms of our physicality um, is that our taste buds change. They move from the front of the mouth to the back of the mouth. Or our taste literally changes as we get older. So we like things as when we're older than different when we're younger. But I also think that the way we mediate the world changes as we get older. And I think we learn to appreciate things differently. I don't think that uh, a youthful perspective is better or worse. It's simply different. Mm -hmm. And you and I were talking about the benefit of experience, particularly in actors. And I think, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the more life experiences an actor has, ultimately the more resident is going to be the performance because they are not always doing imitation. Sometimes they're just subconsciously drawing on things that will inform the performance that they can't even necessarily quantify the individual moment. And that comes from life experience. So I yeah. think the more you live, the better you are at anything, providing you're sentient and aware and you take advantage of the moment to learn. So one thing I want to talk about, you worked on the movie White Chicks and Terry Crews, I mean, that was the first time most of us saw Terry Crews, right? There's certain people in the film industry who um, you are forever grateful for having worked with because they're such good people. Charismatic, generous, talented, able. And you mentioned Jeffrey D. Morgan before, who I love. Um, and Terry Crews is another one of them. Now, I had not known Terry before White Chicks. And they brought him up for what was going to be a relatively, relatively small um, role. And... If you've seen the film, um, there's a sequence where he takes some drugs he shouldn't take and he does a dance. And Terry's built spectacularly. I mean, uh, he used to be a professional footballer and he's very, very fit. And that was basically what the routine was going to be was he says some lines. We cut at the dance floor. He has his shirt off. He starts to dance and we cut to a, a body double, a professional dancer because Terry was not a professional dancer. Unbeknownst to us, Terry, seeing that there was a break to be had here, uh, rehearsed for weeks. The story goes that one time he was rehearsing his hotel room in, the, uh, in his underwear and the cleaner walked in and saw this enormous guy <laughs> doing his uh, dance routine, his underwear, and uh, just got on with the cleaning and uh, probably enjoyed her cleaning more than she might have right. and, and then left. But whatever it was, so the plan was to have one camera on Terry, put it on his face, so we could then uh, take him out later um, and the other cameras, the other five cameras pointing in different directions. And then what happened was the music started and uh, we got the lights going and I had about 250 or 300 extras, a lot of professional dancers in the background. 
Cameron's pointing all different directions, uh, going to the monitor. Keenan and I were sitting next to each other. And we saw Terry's face. We saw the other dancers. And then Terry went into this routine. And Keenan was the first to spot it and go, oh, this is incredible. Bernstein, bring another camera over there. So we swung, swung another camera around, then another camera, and then another camera. And soon all the cameras were pointing at Terry doing this dance routine that none of us had anticipated that he was capable of doing. And then it was like film, film imitating life, imitating film. Because you know how in certain films, suddenly everyone stops and watches someone doing yeah. something um, and everybody stopped and watched someone doing something. All the extras, all the crew, whatever anyone was doing that was behind camera, all turned and looked at Terry, watched him do this entire take. Keenan said, cut, and there's a moment of silence. And then suddenly, wild, spontaneous, limitless applause for about 20 minutes. Wow. That's how incredible it was. And Terry's career then took off. Of course, also in that film, Making My Way Back Home, all those head movements um, entirely improvised by, by Terry. So it was, again, I talk about planning and discovery. Yeah, they planned to use Terry because he's a great and gifted actor. But the discovery of what he was capable of, none of us knew until the day and it was transformative. The fact that he's also one of the nicest human beings, I mean, beyond all reason that you ever hope to meet. Yeah. Generous, kind, or family-oriented, funny, and hugely skillful flautist, a, a classic artist, a, a writer of books, a god. Well, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, you he's known as being like the most evil character to ever be on The Walking Dead. But I've heard he's a really nice guy, too. Not one of the, again, <laughs> one of the nicest people. Uh, Jeffrey's a dear, dear friend um, and incredibly nice. Again, family-oriented, lovely wife, beautiful kids, beautiful farm animals. Um, he loves his farm animals. He's just generous. I worked with him on Magic City, which I got the, yeah. uh, the ASC award for, and I directed some of that. And every time he was on set, everybody was laughing. He made everyone feel part of that family. He's just kind and so good at his craft. Aaron Paul, another one very much like Charlize Theron. People know how successful she is and famous and everything else, but Charlize is one of the kindest, funniest, most generous people you ever hope to meet. You know, Hollywood's got a bad reputation for people supposedly not being kind. If you actually work out here, you realize that the vast majority of people are just ordinary human beings who might happen to be actors, yeah. uh, full of, uh, of generosity, largesse, and want to facilitate you as you facilitate them, uh, full of kindnesses and generosities. It's not only is film hugely rewarding and satisfying, but you meet remarkable people that transmognify you. You become a better and more evolved people for having worked with people at the top of their craft, who've lived interesting lives, seen life in all its machinations and come to kind of a creative understanding of it, you're very lucky to work in film if you happen to. One thing I found fascinating about you, you've not only written film and television scripts in, in your books about film production, but I read that you also wrote a novel. Did you always want to do that? How did that come about? I'd been writing screenplays for a long while. Of course, I wrote these, these books about film, but I hadn't written a novel and um, one of my um, agents said, why don't you? Because your style would seem to lend itself to that. So I decided to do an experiment and write a novel that was uh, in free verse rather than traditional prose. And then drawing on a writer, uh, Lawrence Stern, who wrote uh, one of the first novels called Tristram Shandy, where he would sometimes have words tumbling down the page mm -hmm. or write in an angle. Um, and then I was very interested in... Um, the poets, uh, the new poetry of the 1950s. So 
people like Kerouac and uh, Ginsburg. So I put all these together and then wrote this uh, novel, um, which um, went out to my agents and to others, and everyone's saying it's the best thing I've ever written. Wow. And now it's led to a movie which we're going to be making next year, and I found it um, liberating. And it goes to everything we've been talking about today, which is whenever you hear about an orthodoxy, an order, a set of rules, your inclination should be to violate it because in that you discover your genuine expressive voice. We are inclined to want to follow rules because we're looking for the Rosetta Stone to certain success. And we think that mentors uh, will provide guidance by saying, do this and not that. It succeeded for me, it will succeed for you. But the counterintuitive thing is to do the opposite of that and say, forget all the rules, forget what succeeded in the past, forget the orthodoxies, and let's go on a journey of discovery, both in terms of form and content of our art, and find something entirely new, a new voice, a new form, a new structure, a new order. And ultimately, for me individually, and for a lot of other artists, filmmakers, and writers that I know, it succeeded. Now, how do you, because I love all that. I think that's great. I think that's the, the way we should be doing things. But how do you do that when you are pitching something to a producer, like a project, and that's not what they want to hear at all. That's a great question, and that's where the fearlessness comes because you have to have a certain love of your own self-destruction to actually succeed. And you've got to go into a meeting thinking, like you go to an audition, I'm probably going to fail. In fact, I want to fail. And so you go in and you say, here's my idea, and they go, well, that's not a three-act structure. You've got to write you got to have a beginning, a middle, and end. Got to, by page 10, we've got to know the characters. We need this resolution. We need a, the big change of page 15. You know, I... Sorry, I don't believe any of that. I like what Charlie Kaufman says. I what Mike Lee has to say. I have a radical notion about uh, film structure. Ultimately, it's about character. It's not about narrative. And here's why. And here's how this will work. And it's different from what you've heard. And you may not like it, but I know this to be true. And where's your evidence you support? Well, 95% of all films use the same methodology of the three-act structure. 90% of all films fail. So if you do a scientific experiment that fails 90% of the time... As a scientist, I think you start to say, mm, this isn't working. In Hollywood, we say it works because it works 10% of the time. Yeah. Where's the logic in that? Right. So I, in both Decoding Annie Parker and uh, in Last Call, Decoding Annie Parker, of course, had Samantha Morton, Helen Hunt, Aaron Paul, and a great cast. They responded to my writing, and that's how I got that remarkable cast on a relatively small film. Same thing on Last Call, the reason I got Malkovich and Risa Fons and, and uh, Rodrigo Santoro and uh, Tony Hale was because of the writing, all of which violated all the standard orthodoxies and all of the rules. So I can at least point to those and say, look, here's an example of me breaking um, these Hollywood standards and still um, succeeding. But it goes to a different principle, which is not only have we already demonstrated that this model generally fails that Hollywood uses? But also we have to recognize that in every other art form, there's both experimentation, content, and form. In painting, there were very strict rules about how we should do figurative painting all through the 19th century. And then along come the Impressionist, the Abstract Expressionist, the Cubist, um, the Postmodernist, the Deconstructionist, yeah. and everything changed. In theater, we look at Beckett and everything that happened after, everything changed. In music, we look at John Cage and Stravinsky and everything changed. Why in every other art form are people experimenting with form 
but not in film because it's fear-based and financially um, driven. So that's the argument that I make. And then I go in with a desire to self-destruct. And as long as you want to uh, destroy yourself, you will uh, succeed because you'll be considered uh, 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 having brave notions. And ultimately, there's something within even your investors that can recognize genuineness. Mm -hmm. So when you're sucking up to them and saying, well, this film is just like Ted Lasso, or it's just like uh, Succession, or it's just like thinking, God, that's disingenuous. They're trying to make me, when talking about you as when you're trying to get investment, that you're making the same film that somebody else has made. Well, it's not going to be the same. It's going to be different because somebody else is making it. But when you come in and say, forget all those notions, I want to talk to you about the fundamentals of how film actually works creatively. Forget about this film being successful, that one successful. Let's look at the principles that underpin all filmmaking. And then you explain that to them, explain how you're going to turn it on its head and why there's a chance for success. Again, speaking radically and honestly, telling them they probably won't succeed or probably won't make money, but better to make this noble attempt at something radical, new, and innovative than do what people have done before and still fail 90% of the time. Yeah, I love that so much because, you know, you're right. They hold on to this like, well, you're not following this one format. This won't work because of this. And all these other things are this way. And when you say, yeah, 90% of those things still fail. So why are we holding on to these? I mean, well, you and I were talking about auditioning before. Yeah. I always say to young actors, because I've had a lot of audition sessions when I used to audition actors. And the one sure way to fail an audition is try to be anticipating what the director wants. What they want. Because you're not thinking about your character. You're not thinking about yourself. You're not getting in touch with your intuitions. You're trying to read someone else's mind. And by the way, once the director does like that performance, then that poor actor, uh, when they come on set, has to remember Mm -hmm. what the director liked before. And then rather than being in the moment, trying to draw on a memory that was never intuitive in the first place. This way lies certain madness. (laughs) (laughs) That's absolutely. I love that. Well, you touched on a couple things that I I really love. You work with Samantha Morton. She's absolutely, to me, the best actor on the planet. If I was casting my movie, the, they would say, who's going to star? And I'd say, Samantha Morton. What's it about? Doesn't matter. She can play it. What was your experience like working with her? In, incredible. First of all, the hiring was quite special because uh, the uh, Mary Venu, who's one of the best, if not the best casting director in the world, uh, read my script, decoding Annie Parker, and loved it. So first getting Mary Venu on board was great because Mary can put the script in anyone's hands. And we had a long discussion about what my vision was and what sort of actor, and I talked about my interest in intuition and my interest in improvisation and my prejudice for English actors because I grew up working with English actors in the UK, and I can work with them easily, although I work very successfully with American actors as well. And Mary said, what about Samantha Morton? I said, well, I love Samantha Morton's work. She's a really interesting character. Let's see. Let's send her the script, see what happens. The next day, my phone rang, and it was, hey, hi, this is Samantha Morton. I said, okay. Wow. <laughs> that was quick. She said, love the script. Um, let's talk. And, oh, we didn't talk about the script after that at all. We talked about improvisation. We talked about intuition. We talked about pain. We talked about loss. We talked about um, human sacrifice, uh, plexities of adult relationships. We talked about literature. We talked about art. We talked about theater. We barely talked about the script at all. At the end of two and a half hours on the phone, we both decided we want to work together. And then uh, just as we were about to ring off, I said, oh, Samantha, you didn't ask me about the script. She goes, we've said everything that's important. 
Nice. And um, wow. and then we went on to work together. And the working process was a delight. Again, never about how an individual scene was going to be treated, but rather an understanding of character. I worked very hard on backstory. I write hundreds of pages of imagined backstory about a character. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with paying that off later in the actual film. Yeah. So I don't say the person got injured in the sawmill, so later when they... Uh, we, we see that they're successful. They're remembering that their brother was killed in the sawmill or any of that sort of nonsense. I create backstory just to create complexity and character, most of which will never appear on camera, but it informs performance. So I gave uh, Samantha my 150 pages of backstory. She gave me back 100 pages of what she felt she'd like to add to the backstory. And all we talked about was the history of the character, Yeah, nothing specific to the film. And then she would intuit that history all through her performance, was generous, um, worked very well with other actors, was always on set just to uh, help and cooperate to feed off-screen looks. Her and Alice Eve and and, uh, Aaron Paul, all very, very special. She's a magical person. I mean, that was a great cast, uh, decoding Annie Parker. And I thought uh, an important story and and very interesting. If you guys haven't seen it, it's on Amazon Prime, I, I, that's where I watched it. It has to do with them trying to discover this gene that predicts that you're going to get cancer. It's a mutated a, a gene mutation called the BRCA gene, where if you get it, you get a particularly virulent type of breast cancer, which is very, very deadly. And the film was important for lots of reasons. I yeah. mean, it won lots of awards, which I'm very flattered by. But also, um, it, it engendered a Supreme Court case because uh, someone had uh, put a patent on this gene. And for indigent women, um, women without a lot of income, to get tested for this predisposition, this type of cancer, would have cost them thousands of dollars. And all of us thought that was wrong because, you know, health is something that we should all share in collectively, and it shouldn't have to do with how much money we have about whether we should get tested. So we facilitated and helped this case get to the U.S. Supreme Court eventually. Wow. And it was adjudicated that no one could patent a gene. So we're very proud of that. I was subsequently interviewed on National Public Radio mm-hmm. and uh, uh, most of the major television networks. And that's one of the effects this, this film had. Also, uh, Mary Claire King, who was the researcher that discovered the BRCA gene, the film was partially about her. She got millions of dollars in uh, charitable donations. Later, President Obama gave her the Presidential Medal of uh, Science. And so we felt we did some considerable good with the film. And the film was engaging, entertaining, and it was life-affirming. And as you rightly say, uh, some spectacular um, actors in the list of cast in the film is get a chance to see it. It's incredible. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 
Well, if you're talking about holistic, I mean, this is a film that literally is something that is important in the world. It's important. Uh, it's got great actors in it. It was important with, you know, like you said, going to the Supreme Court. And if it, it starts with somebody, you know, wanting to tell that story, right? Right. That's uh, really cool. Yeah. Uh, Decoding Annie Parker, you guys should watch that if you have not seen that. I highly recommend it. And Samantha Morton, I recommend everything she's in. She can, she was, I mean, she does Jane Austen. She was in Sweet and Lowdown, which where I first discovered her, Sweet and Lowdown doesn't say one word in the movie and is the most interesting person by far. And right. I mean, she's just so great. And then she even a couple of years ago was on, she had a, she was the villain on The Walking Dead for a couple of seasons. Alpha. She, she was. Worked with my very good friend, my very dear friend, Jeffrey D. Morgan, and produced by another friend of mine, a gal Ann Hurd. So my, my whole little family was working on that film, as it were. One of my favorite anecdotes of all the film is um, when Samantha was going to work with Woody Allen on Sweet and Lowdown. And of course, as you rightly say, her character never speaks. Yeah. So she said, Woody Allen, can I send me the script? And Woody Allen said, your character doesn't speak. And Samantha Morton said, yeah, I still want to see the script before I decide whether I want to yeah. play it or not. And Woody Allen said, but your character doesn't speak. And Woody Allen never gives the script to everybody. He gave Samantha Morton the ah. script to the non-speaking character. And she went on to get an Oscar nomination for that she movie. She did. Yeah. yeah. And she was also nominated for In America, another Oscar nomination. Yeah. So anyway, I'm fanboying out about Samantha Morton because I think she's just the best. And I don't think people know, enough people know who she is. Maybe you've seen her. She's on a minor, minority report. She's one of the precogs. I also, you know, still all these things that she's been so great in. No, I was very, and look, playing opposite her in my film was Helen Hunt. Yeah. Was a two-time Oscar yep. nominee and won an Oscar. And we had Aaron Paul, who's uh, Emmy Award winning, Golden Globe. Um, uh, Bradley Whitford, Emmy Award winning. Yep. Alice Eve's very good. Alice Eve is a spectacular. Alice is um, underrated, uh, intellectual, Oxford-educated intellectual um, uh, spectacular. It was it was very, very special. Rashida, well, Rashida Jones. That's right, mentioned. Rashida Jones. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I don't know how much you were involved in the cast of that, but like you've got all these great dramatic actors, people know as dramatic actors, and then like really funny people too, that it just all together. And I think that's great. That's the symbiosis and yeah. that we, no, that you need to, I was, I was, I was the director. So I cast it all. So yeah, they're, they're all, go. they're all my choices and uh, all uh, <laughs> delightful interviews. Well, we were very lucky on that film. And as I did, um, uh, 26 interviews ultimately of, of the directors, the actors I had narrowed it down that I wanted to use and all 26 asked to be in the film. So it was kind of remarkable um, wow. that, um, the interviewing process went very well. They liked the script. They liked me. Very, very lucky. Same thing that happened on Last Call was that everyone we offered the film to uh, accepted. So it's, um, you know, when you talk to actors about improvisation, when you talk about giving backstory, when you talk about how sacred the film set is uh, and that it has to be conducive to creative expression, that it's a non-threatening place where we take our time. When I rehearse actors for the blocking, everybody leaves. Nobody's there at all except me and the actors and we can take all the time we want to get it right. Only then do we bring the crew back. So those sorts of circumstances, offering that to actors, draws them to the material. Actors want to act. And when you provide the facility for them to do that, they'll come work with you. Wow. Well, before we get out of here, I need to get three quick recommendations from Stephen Bernstein. What is the hidden gem show or movie that you love that people may not know? Mum, a British TV series with mm. Leslie Banville is a masterpiece of uh, writing and performance. If you like Mike Lee, but more comic and somewhat more ordered, the show's a revelation. And another Irish-British show called Normal People, 
uh, based on the novel by the Irish novelist, another masterpiece of performance and writing. Those are the my two hidden gems. Mm, okay, I'll have to check those out. What is the show or movie that you watch just for fun? Uh, look, I delight in everything that I see. I extract something of value um, from most of the stuff. I love... Uh, creaking uh, British procedurals, um, just because it reminds me of Britain, and I and I I, I miss the place. And so with the old Sherlock Holmes or the new, more recent Sherlock Holmes series, I delight in. But I like Succession a lot. And oh yeah, I I recognize that it's a pretty dark vision of um, of our shared human condition. I don't think any of them are even vaguely redemptive or capable of redemption. But it's compulsive viewing. It's brilliantly written, well performed. And it's like watching the world's best car accident, but you can't stop watching. So my guilty pleasure. Yeah, I always I always kind of say, and maybe this is overstating it, but I always say it's like watching Shakespeare, the way it's plot-wise at least. Yeah, yeah. And maybe if Shakespeare was alive today and didn't write an iambic pentameter, he would write something. Because this is, I mean, this is this is a tragedy with with the two, you know, you've, you've got Rosen, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you've got Cousin Greg and Tom. Just, you know, as the two sides of this kind of buffoonery. <laughs> yeah, but do, I, I would point out that even in, in Lear, which is pretty dark, yeah. um, you still have a, a character who is essentially good. I right. Mean, one, one good daughter. Uh, in, in, in Hamlet, you have, uh, you know, some at least observational um, sort of kindness. Um, and Hamlet is misguided, but not really evil. This, this is as dark as anything could go, I would think, for the most part. I mean, there's no one um, who has it. Maybe the Holly Hunter character at least has is about something besides self-service, but not really very much. Maybe. I don't yeah. know. She's still, <laughs> if we're talking about people that are in the yeah, in the family, really not very redemptive. But maybe Cherry Jones' character, she was kind of redemptive, but she wasn't. She was deliberately a polar opposite of them, right? She was, but she's she's pretty mean-spirited as well. <laughs> negotiation. I, I don't I, I don't know. Look, if the world was really like succession, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to live in it. Um, right. So my wife, uh, Carolyn, pointed out that maybe this is the way all rich people are. And again, that's terrifying. It's going to make me very hard next time I go and try to raise money for the movie. I'll yeah. be looking at them thinking, are you like the people in succession? Do I really want you to invest in my movie? And what's going to happen to me afterwards? It's uh, it's too terrifying of a thing to, comp- uh, to contemplate. But my God, it's just stunningly done. And this is the basic takeaway I have from it, is that everyone thinks that we have to manipulate our structure in a particular way to be successful, that there has to be redemption or success or the hero has to triumph. And yet succession is compulsive viewing for millions. And it doesn't have redemption. It doesn't have um, the, the, the payoff or the reward for virtue and any of those things. But people watch it and they watch it because it's of such high quality. Yeah. So I would like to again turn the paradigm on its head and say what audiences love, they love things of quality. Yeah. And all the orthodoxies and the ordering and everything else that we think to do with the myth and the hero's journey is a bit of a nonsense. People sense intuitively when something's of quality and they're drawn to it. I I'm obsessed with just walking around doing Cousin Greg all the time. I don't know why. Anytime somebody says something that sounds anything like Cousin Greg, I go, oh, uh, look, I'm, I'm not a part of this. I just... Uh, I'll, I'll help you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, because it's perfect. And by the way, uh, and by the way, what if the nephew ends up buying Paramount Studios? What would he say when he's the head of Paramount Studios? Uh, look, I, I guess I'm in charge. I'm the, the at the Paramount peak precipice of uh, running this now, guys. So, uh, you know, that's I think that's going to be my desk. Cousin Greg is, is such a moral dilemma for me because you get so angry with him because he he's incompetent at corruption. 
And so why should we be upset with him being incompetent? He shouldn't be corrupt in the first place. Right. But people in America, sadly, just want people to be good at what they do. It doesn't matter how bad it is, how bad a thing they're doing. So in The Godfather, we're rooting for Michael Corleone. He's a killer. Yeah. And in succession, we're rooting for Cousin Greg, who's kind of a little monster in his own right. Yeah. You know, he's just yeah. bad at it. In many ways, he, to me, he and Tom are the worst people of all because they're intentionally, they don't have to be part of this family. Exactly. Right. They're making themselves part of the family. They're intentionally putting themselves in this horrible family. And they know exactly what they're getting into. <laughs> but again, it still goes back to the question. We all watch it. A lot of us are. Why are we watching horrible people doing horrible things? We can't stop that. Because it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. That's the only description I have. It's so good. I was thinking, um, talking to my wife again about uh, Ted Lasso, which is all about kindness and the opposite of this. So I thought they should combine the two shows. And we, <laughs> we, sh- we should have the, the head of the succession family by uh, Richmond Football Club. So mm. Ted Lasso has to convert him into the, the world of kindness. Interesting. Would Ted Lasso or would um, the people in succession triumph? That's the question. I mean, that it only ends with Ted Lasso getting violently murdered or <laughs> framed for something and thrown in jail. <laughs> they, they, they frame Ted Lasso and he goes to prison for 20 years. Yeah. They take over the club. Exactly. That would be... <laughs> <laughs> they would they would do that. Brian Cox would set it all up. This coach, I can't stand him yeah, anymore. Yeah. Frame him for the murder. Yeah. Put him up for this. For the guy, the guy who drowns in the set pond. Set him up as a pedo. Uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ted Lasso meets succession. See, that would be our if we were ill if we were poorly advised. We would go into a pitch meeting and there would be a studio. And they'd, all right, what's your pitch? Well, this is our pitch. You know, you know Succession. Our show's just like Succession. You know how successful it is. You know how many people watch it? They go, yeah, we know Succession. So just like Succession. But Succession meets Ted Lasso. You know how successful Ted Lasso was. So we take Ted Lasso and we take Succession and we combine them together. Mm-hmm. And that's why we want you to give you give us $40 million because it's going to be an incredible TV show. What do you think? Right. What's the name of the show? Nate the Great. <laughs> Nate, Nate would fit right in with the succession people. Yeah. Wouldn't Nate be great as a crossover into that world now? I, I think we've got an idea. Now, what's going to happen? We didn't copyright it. Someone's going to steal the idea. It's going to be. Do you think Nate can redeem himself? I think clearly that show, speaking seriously, is about pretty serious topics. And, I, and about, by the way, I enjoyed season two much more when they got into those topics. For I me, I, I was much more invested. I, I agree with you. And I think it's about important things. And of course, it's about kindness. But it's also about family. And it's also about having a moral anchor. The ability to apologize, they talk about a lot. The apology, the ability to forgive. Redemption, you know, changing and then being that new person, owning who you are, acknowledging what your faults are and altering them. That's what that show's about. And those are very adult topics disguised as a comedy. So Nate is misguided. He's angry and he's projecting his unhappiness on the other characters. So I think ultimately he'll go down his path. He'll discover his malfeasance and then he'll come back of being a better person for having been a bad one. And if you haven't seen, I guess, you know, spoiler alert. <laughs> Man, did we just wreck the show for you? We didn't give too many details, actually. By the way, that's Nate is the uh, the French version of the show. I think he's called something else in the English and American version. So it's a different character. Oh yeah, it's yeah, a different yeah, one, guy. It's not what you think. Don't yeah, <laughs> don't want to think we've just ruined uh, series two for you. Right. <laughs> what is the short movie that inspires you? Films that have most influenced me. Lawrence of Arabia, because mm-hmm. it's a perfect movie. It's a combination of the visceral, the visual, the Robert Bolt's script, masterful acting, a boldness of vision uh, by David Lean, master performance of director. 
of actors. So Lawrence of Arabia, absolutely. I like the kindness and humanity of most of Renoir, so like things like Rules of the Game, then carried into Truffaut, so like uh, Nuit Americain uh, and films like that. Um, the humanity I'm moved by and I still watch them. Uh, Jacques Tati, because creating um, feelings in an audience entirely using images, um, I think is fascinating and informs uh, all the films that I now make. Paul Thomas Anderson, virtually everything he's done, I think is uh, masterful. Uh, Boogie Nights, I think, is absolutely genius about taking very dark characters and talking about these things we were just talking about, about yeah. a redemption and hope and uh, reconstructing ourselves from the elements of our own ruin. I, I think these are big ideas. And of course, Magnolia, which really continues these same themes. Mm. And what I loved about Magnolia was the juxtaposition of the surreal um, with the real, which I, I love to do as well. In the middle of, um, the, near the end of uh, my film Last Call, I put in a dance sequence, which seems wholly anomalous, but really very important in terms of the understanding of the ideas of the film. So uh, lots of different films that I like, but um, I would mention those first and foremost. I'll tell you what, when you're talking about P.T. Anderson, you're talking my language right there. You know, <laughs> I, I I even love uh, Punch Drunk Love, who I thought was uh, kind of brilliant. And they well, used I, that. I had the great pleasure of working with Adam Sandler. I always thought he was a great actor. Uh, not just in Punch Drunk Love, was he great, but a, a film that's not a P.T. Anderson film, but um, I thought Uncut Gems was uh, yeah. a masterpiece of not only acting, but of filmmaking, because the rawness and the authenticity of that. And, you know, it goes to something that's very important for screenwriters. They're so driven by all these books about the three-act structure that in the end, they have the characters serving structure, and that's bad writing. But when you have people acting the way we do in ordinary life, they have lots of different agendas that they're interested in, lots of different subjects they're talking about. And so in Uncut Gems, or in any Mike Lee film for that matter, the characters talk about a plethora of things that have nothing to do with the narrative, and that may seem off-topic, but we recognize it as genuine and real, and therefore those characters become alive for us, and we build an empathic bridge to our audience. So it's breaking, again, the orthodoxy of script writing. Write people as you experience them in real life rather than you're told to write them in, by screenwriting books or by gurus, and you'll make a better movie. Guys, if you'd like to get more Brentfast stuff, such as pics of Stephen Bernstein and I enjoying our Brentfast from Harvest Moon, Go to my website, brentpope.com. You can list all the Brentfast episodes there. You can see clips from all my TV appearances and the official Brentfast store with a bunch of fun stuff. Shirts, mugs, stickers, masks. Steven Bernstein's first headshot. We have copies of it in the... We don't really have that. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. We might get that in the store, guys. His first headshot ever. You're, you're, you're really going to want that. People of Earth, do yourself a favor by picking up something from the Brentfast store. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Brentfast to make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Brentfast is being enjoyed all over the United States and in 46 other countries. And trust me, my Breakfast Burrito Brigade, we're just getting started. Special thanks to my editor, the one and only Rosemary Brown, for all the Breakfast Slice and Dice. And much appreci- big ups also to my studio engineer, Marco Leon, for making me sound so good. Stephen Bernstein, what's uh, what's next for you and where can we find you on social media? Most people follow me on Instagram, which is Stephen Bernstein, um, director, writer. And every single day without fail, I either do a little video or a film clip and I do an analysis trying to explain it uh, in terms of the acting, the script writing, the cinematography, the holistic uh, approach to filmmaking. Uh, it sometimes will be a minute long, sometimes it'll be four or five minutes long, but something every single day. Stephen Bernstein, director, writer on Instagram. Uh, there's also a uh, website called Stephen Bernstein, director, writer.com, where people can also pre-order the book. And as what's happening for me next, um, 
I'm writing a TV series called London Diary uh, that will be a shot in the UK and in India. Uh, there's a feature film in Spain called Not Then But Now. And then uh, a TV series about the 1821 revolution in Greece, which um, I've just delivered and will be shooting next year. It was going to shoot this year, which is the 200th anniversary of the Greek revolution. And then I'm doing a film and I'm actually directing here uh, in the US called GRQ, Get Rich Quick, based on my novella. Stephen Bernstein, thank you so much for coming in. This was a, truly a pleasure. I, I learned so much and I really enjoyed talking with you. And I enjoyed speaking with you as well. And I enjoyed the burrito. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, and with that, we put another uh, Logan family vacation episode of Breakfast with Brent Pope. Is that what I'm supposed to? In this, I'm going to put it in this to-go bag. Uh, okay. Uh, see ya. <laughs> you gotta, and Logan says, you got you to gotta have that. Do it again, you cunt. <laughs> 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 you little fucker. <laughs> you, I'm, paying, I'm paying for this studio time, you little fuck. You think you can fuck with me? <laughs> <laughs>